thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Continuing our Bible study with the book of Genesis, and we are now entering into chapter 24. So please join me in um, opening your Bibles, if you brought it with you, to chapter 24 of the book of Genesis. It is an important chapter uh, f- for uh, many of us because it deals with a subject that is very close to our heart, and that is marriage. So let's read um, beginning chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his house, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, grant me success today, I pray thee, and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the maiden to whom I shall say, Pray, let down your jar, that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. By this I shall know that thou hast shown shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had done speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar upon her shoulder. The maiden was very fair to look upon, a virgin whom no man had known. 
She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Pray give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her, her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw for your camels also until they have done drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the, the trough and ran again to the well to draw. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had done drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for, for us to lodge in? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord, and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the maiden ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to the man to the spring. When he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to him. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for, your, for the camels. So the man came into the house, and Laban ungirded the camels, and gave him straw and provender for the camels, and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have told my errand. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, men servants and maiden servants, camels and asses. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my kindred and, to, and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way. And you shall take a wife for my son from my kindred and from my father's house. Then... You will be free from my oath when you come to my kindred, and if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now thou wilt prosper the way which I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water, that the young woman who comes out to draw to whom I shall say, Pray give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also, let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had done speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew. I said to her, Pray, let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets in her arms. And I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, 
If you will deal loyally and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, And the Lord has, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the, the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought forth jewelry of silver and of gold and raiment and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me back to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the maiden remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Let me go, that I may go to my master. They said, We will call the maiden and ask her. And I called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, be the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her maids arose and rode upon the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had come from Ber Laharoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she alighted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is the man yonder walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she, lo- she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Long chapter. And a very complex story was told in a couple pages. Um, There are numerous, copious, copious pages of commentaries from the fathers on this chapter. And most of the fathers will look at this chapter and see in Isaac and Rebekah an image of Jesus and the church. I have told you last time about the importance of the church for Christ. And here is a chapter in which all many of the fathers, whether St. Ambrose, St. Ephraim, um, uh, Caesarus of Arles, Origen, St. John Chrysostom, St. Augustine, commented on this and saw in it this relationship between Jesus and the church. Of all the patriarchs, the relationship between Isaac and Rebekah is probably the most upright, the most pure, the closest to a Christian marriage. Isaac is, of the patriarchs is the only one who had one wife. And by this I mean no concubines. He only had Rebekah and he had no one else. And he was faithful to her. So, with that in mind, let's just go through this chapter and see what it has to teach us about marriage. The first, the first thing we need to look at is the, is the arrangement of the chapter. 
Abraham's commission to his servant, verses 1 through 9. That's when Abraham sent his servant out to seek a wife for his son. The servant's prayer, verses 10 through 14. Then uh, the encounter with Rebecca at the well, 15 through 27. And then essentially the betrothal, 28 through 61. Very um, linear chapter. Let's go through some uh, of the important aspects that we find in this chapter. First of all, verse 1. Abraham was old, advanced in years. Abraham is aware that his end is coming, and before he dies, he wants to make sure that his son is married. The reason why he wants his son to be married isn't simply because he loves his son and he would like to be able to celebrate. If you notice... No celebration is mentioned in this chapter. When Rebekah comes, Scripture doesn't tell us, and Abraham threw a big feast, and they went and brought the calf and prepared it, etc. None of that. If you notice, the only time when such a celebration is mentioned is in the context of the theophany, the apparition of God as three men by the Oak of Memory, when he basically went and did all these preparation. And here is the wedding of his son, and no preparation are made. Nothing. It almost goes nearly unnoticed. Isaac sees her. She sees him. The next thing is they're under the tent, and they're married. Right? There is a very important lesson for us, a very important lesson that most of us, unfortunately, have forgotten. Most of the time, our wedding celebrations are way off the top. There are, in some sense, there, there may even be sinful. Okay? In an economy that is going downhill, where so many people are losing their jobs, for somebody to spend $100,000 or $50,000 on a wedding is something that is... Um, Strange, to say the least, from a Christian point of view. It's too much. We've gone way over the top with those things. Our celebration, our weddings have become more and more carnal instead of being spiritual. Okay? There's something we need, that we need to rethink as Christian living in this modern world. Our weddings usually, when you look at the c- celebration... That what, the thing that happens after the wedding, they are indistinguishable from any other pagan party out there. Most of the girls who show up at those parties are dressed scandalously. They're barely covered. Those, those are not Christian weddings. Those are pagan weddings. It is something that we should really think through. And we should not be afraid to stand up to those members in our families who might want it to be this way, who are pushed by vanity and by pride to make a wedding that is outlandish, extravagant. And for what? What are we celebrating exactly in this wedding? They just started. It's day one. Actually, it's day zero. I would maybe understand why we would do it if the couple was, has been married for 25 years 
And both of them can stand up and say, I love her today more than I loved her when I met her. And if she can say the same, that's a real cause for rejoicing. There is something to rejoice over. That just started. What are we celebrating? It's way over the top. And I would dare say that a Christian from the Middle East and from the Mediterranean basin in general, Greeks and otherwise, are very guilty of these things. Okay? It's scandalous what we do in those weddings. Way over the top. I really urge you, if you are in the process of thinking about getting married or your children are going to get married, think it through. Do not scandalize the poor in your marriage. Now, I'm not saying don't celebrate, by all means. I'm not saying don't make it nice and enjoyable, by all means. But think about what you're doing and to what degree do you have to go. This is what we see here. Isaac, Rebecca. The focus of Scripture is not on those things. Back to what I was saying. The reason why Abraham wants to marry his son isn't just because he is his son and he wants to see him married. Primarily, it is because he wants to be faithful to the word of God. By your seed shall all nations be blessed. That is not going to happen unless Isaac is married. Hmm? Abraham is ever faithful to the word of God and he understands that is not going to happen on its own. God is not going to just part the sky and somehow you know, send a blessed bolt and all the nations are blessed by the seed of Abraham. It's going to require hard work. It's going to require hard work. Which brings me to a related subject. Many of us who, who have kids, or who may not have kids, many of us may be going through a life of struggle. Things never seem to be the way they should be. The house is not as clean as you want it to be. Or does not stay clean as long as you want it to be. There's taxes and the budget and it doesn't always line up and things happen here and there that upset your plans. And then there may be health issues and family issues and on and on the list goes. I'm sure every single one of you here can draw a long laundry list of things that you wish were not in your life. We all long for a life of peace. A life where everything is organized. As a father of seven, I'd love it if I get home and my kids are all singing together hymns after hymns like a bunch of little monks. And then the night comes and they bow before Christ and they sit there for half an hour in adoration with only candles. And then they give us a kiss and go to bed quietly. I don't have to tell you that this is not exactly how it happens in my house. It is rather a form of, uh, um, well, make noises, make joyful noises to the Lord. That would be the description that happens in my house. But I think that this is on purpose. This 
struggle that is in your life and in my life is a blessed struggle. It is meant to be there. It is that struggle that will take you to heaven. If you did not have that struggle, if you had a life that was perfect, ordered, under control, everything is in, pla- in, in, is in its place, everything is spotless, everything happens exactly as you want it to be, you are two foot, two foot, two feet, sorry, two feet away from hell. You are essentially courting hell. Do you know why? Because none of us is perfect. All of us are imperfect. All of us need to work in fear and trembling for our salvation. St. Paul. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. This is St. Paul. St. Paul who's saying this. Right? Why? None of us is perfect. All of us need the struggle to perfect us. If the struggle is taken away from our life, what are we left with? Imperfection. Do you understand? So, wisdom suggests that instead of despising the struggle, instead of trying to run away from it, instead of trying to ignore it, do the opposite. Do the opposite. Love that struggle. See Christ in that struggle. And let go. Let go. Do not own anything. By this I mean, do not think that something is solely your responsibility. Nothing is solely your responsibility. If God is in your life, God is in control. Let Him be in control. Let go. Trust providence. Abraham. What does he do? He wants his son married so that he can fulfill the law of God. He wants to be faithful. I will make sure my son is married so that that promise that God made me will come true. He brings his most faithful servant. And then he makes a strange request. At least it sounds strange to our ears. Put your hand under my thigh. That is obviously very strange to us. Essentially, it's a gesture accompanying an oath-taking. And it's really related to the covenant. Without going through the details, the mechanical details of what that exactly means, there are three different possibilities. I'll spare you the details that are important for us. What is important, however, is that this is a gesture that signifies an oath-taking. Through the covenant. When he does that, he's essentially ratifying that covenant. Uh, Today, for instance, when you go to court, they make you swear, right? If you go to court as a witness, they ask you to swear. And what do you do? There's a ritual that goes with it. You put your hand on a book. To us, we're just used to it. It, it seems completely normal, even though 99.99% of people out there have absolutely no clue why they're doing it. They'll feel strange if they didn't do it. They want to do it, but they don't know why they're doing it. But to, if you could detach yourself from this culture and look at it from the outside in, what do you see? You see a guy standing up there, somebody bringing a book, he puts his hand on the book. Well, 
You know, how is that different from putting your hand on a toaster or an ice cream maker or a vacuum cleaner? Why are you putting your hand on a book if you knew nothing of the book, right? And then you'll, you'll see it says the Bible. Well, okay, why not Alice in Wonderland, right? Or, I don't know, the latest results of the, you know, baseball's match. Why? What does that mean? It's strange. It is just as strange in a sense. Obviously, for a culture where we have a deep personal space, where we don't like to be touched, putting your hand on the thigh of somebody is obviously carry connotations that are really unwelcome. Right? This is not something we'd like to do. But the fundamental idea is the same. He is swearing that he is going to do what his master is asking him to do. And if he doesn't, so if he does, he will be blessed. And if he doesn't, he will be cursed. Right? That's essentially the meaning of this. I'll, I'll, let me read to you actually what uh, uh, Kaisers of Arles, one of the fathers, say, says about this, and then what St. Augustine says about that. Brothers, following the blessed Apostle Paul, we should believe that all things which were written for the Jews happened to them as a type, but in reality were fulfilled for us. Therefore Abraham said to his servant, Put your hand under my thigh and swear by the God of heaven and of earth. Thus blessed Abraham said, Put your hand under my thigh, as if he were saying, Put your hand upon the altar, or put your hand upon the ark of the testament, or stretch forth your hand to God's temple and swear to me. He touched his thigh and swore by the God of heaven and earth. For blessed Abraham did not err when he commanded that this be done, but because he was filled with the spirit of prophecy and knew that from his own seed, Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, would be born. Therefore, when his servant touched his thigh, he did not utter an oath by, by any carnal member, but by the living and true God, because Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah, of those of whose Christ's seed the Lord was born. So, Kaisers of ours, like many of the fathers, would see in this particular gesture a sign symbolizing that he was not just swearing by Abraham's thigh or the covenant, but truly by Christ, who would one day come from Abraham. St. Augustine says, This surely was prophetic of the fact that the Lord God of heaven and the Lord of the earth would one day come in flesh, fashioned from that thigh. Marriage, therefore, is a good in which the married are better in, in proportion as they fear God more chastely and more faithfully, especially if they also nourish spiritually the children whom they desire carnally. And the patriarch asked his servant for an oath. And he tells him, I want you to go to the land of my family and bring from them a wife from my son. Not from the Canaanites. Why not from the Canaanites? He lived among them all these years. Why not take a wife to his son from the Canaanites? Why travel many, many miles, many hundreds of miles to go fetch a girl that neither Abraham nor Isaac has ever seen? And why not take one girl from the Canaanites who are living around him? Yeah. Abraham understands the covenant. He understands the curse of Noah. And he understands that his faithfulness to the covenant means that nothing that fell under this curse could possibly be mixed with that line that will bless all the nations. This is why he sends forth for a girl from his kinsmen. And that is one of the lessons for us. 
over these past, what, 12 years I've been doing this Bible study, I cannot tell you the number of times I've spoken with somebody who, in their youth, married someone who was not serious about the faith. And who now, having children, has begun to regret it. Abraham sent his servant hundreds of miles to bring a girl from his own kinsmen. I'm telling you right now, if you meet a man or a woman and you find them attractive, but they are not of the faith, they, by not of the faith, I don't simply mean that they are not Catholic, I mean they are not living their faith seriously. Don't make the mistake of thinking, especially women, please. Uh, women are ten, tend to be bent on changing the guys. I'll tell you, you can change maybe his haircut. You can change the way he dress. He won't mind any of this. Right? You'll have a harder time changing what he eats. And you have to put up with the fact that you don't cook as well as his mom does. At least for a while. Okay? All of those are okay. But don't ever think that if he tells you straight away, by his gestures, by his actions, the faith is not important to him, don't ever be under the illusion that he'll change. If he honestly tells you, I don't believe now, take that to mean he won't believe tomorrow. And then, run. Run as fast as you can. Because all you're doing is bringing trouble into your own household. Mixed marriages are very difficult. When it comes to, very difficult. I'm not saying they don't they, they always fail, that's what I'm saying, but it's very, very difficult. And as, especially once you get into the faith, and you understand the importance of the church, and you look at your husband, and he's outside the church. Very important. First thing you want to ask this person, where are you in your faith? And you have to be absolutely convinced that you're marrying someone committed to the faith. Because then you know that the blessings of God will flow in your life. And I'm not saying that despite our, you know, sometimes our own idiotic behavior, God doesn't manage to fix the situation. He does in many cases. Things work out, thanks be to God. But it doesn't mean that we should act idiotically right, for a strand of blonde hair, or brown hair, or yellow hair, or red hair, or, or no hair. Okay? We need to think that the spiritual commitment is what is going to carry that marriage forward. And that's where we want the blessings to come from. So if today you are married and your wife is in a church, or if today you're married and your husband is in a church, and maybe he's too loud or he doesn't hear as well as he used to, or he talks too much, or don't forget to thank God for that blessing. Don't forget to thank God for that blessing. Because it is a blessing. Now, the servant takes camels. And remember, back then camels are very expensive. Camels are Cadillacs. So he's taking ten of them. Right? This is how important it is for, for, for uh, Abraham. Right? They didn't use to, to trek on 
on horses, on, on camels. They had horses or they had uh, mules. And so most of them would not cross the desert. This, was, this would, would happen about 600 years after Abraham's time, that you see these crossings of the deserts with camels. So camels were not well known in the region. We know that from archaeological digs, from the kind of drawings. For instance, go to Egypt and look at all the hieroglyphs. You'll never see a camel. And yet Egypt has a, a sizable desert. There were no camels back then. Only camels were really exotic. So he's taking ten of them. That shows you also how successful Abraham is. We're talking about a very rich man who can throw a party. He can throw a one-year party if he wanted to. And then he prays. So this chapter truly can be called the chapter of providence. Providence. You see, um, the really interesting thing, the, the, the distinguishing factor between Catholics and Protestants is that Protestants spend their time talking about God. If you read the literature, if you read stories that they write, they speak, they talk about God all the time. Stories written by Catholics scarcely mention God. Why? Because the story is carried by providence. That's why. I don't need to keep on mentioning God all the time. Because I believe in providence. Which is the working of the Holy Spirit in my life. And why do Catholics believe in providence and Protestants have a really hard time with it? You, you will seldom see them use the word providence to begin with. Why? Because we have the church. And we believe that the church is guided in all things by the Holy Spirit. So we are the church of providence. Or we are a providential church. Providence is the working of God in history, right? in, in invisible ways. So a perfect example I can give you of a Catholic story is the Lord of the Rings, written by Tolkien, who was a Catholic. In the Lord of the Rings, for those of you who read or seen the movie, you see, for instance, this, this creature Gollum, who is a loathsome creature, and who Frodo wanted to kill initially. He wanted to get rid of him, but he didn't. And the working of providence was that Gollum did not die when Frodo wished for him to die. He played a very important role later, despite his own desires. You, you will find that in many, in many cases, if you look at your own life. Well, I just went there to meet, to, to visit my sister, and while I was there, so-and-so came, and this thing happened, and providence. Providence guides you in all things. Providence leads you. Providence takes you places where you need to be, where you, to talk to people. Providence. Providence is something you notice when you have a prayer for, prayer for life and when you have let go of your own control. You are no longer in control. And by this I mean you do not own, possess, command, control what you're doing to the degree that if it doesn't work, you're devastated. All right? You let go. God is in control. You do what you can. You do your, your best, your very best. But as far as the outcome is concerned, God is in control. And if you can live that in your own life, in your own personal life, live at that level, in, in spite or despite great difficulties. Your husband is not in the church. God is in control. Give him to Mary. Give him to Mary and let go. 
Don't sit and fret and be full of anxiety and just let go. Your kids are following him. They're not following you. They don't want to go to the church. They want to do like that. Pray. Hope. Don't worry. Providence. God will take care of you. Your job is uncertain. Pray. Hope. Don't worry. You're a student. You don't know what is going to happen to you when you graduate. You're not sure you're going to be able to graduate. Do your best. Pray, hope, don't, don't worry. You don't know. You, you wanted to, 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 to be a doctor and you were rejected from school. You're devastated. Pray, hope, don't worry. Providence. God leads you. God walks with you. God will get you where He wants you to be, where you need to be, where you need to go. Most of the time, our own anxiety makes things all difficult. We're like spoiled brats who just don't want to go to the bathroom even though we need it. We're fighting and screaming and making a temper tantrum and hold, you know, and just digging our heels in and yet that's where we need to go. So, learn from Abraham. He brought his, son, his servant. He told him what he wanted and then Abraham said, and the servant said, what if she doesn't want to come with me? The angel of the Lord will go before you. Notice how strong those words are. I want you for two seconds to think about how you will speak to your children about marriage. Will you tell your children, don't worry. God has already picked the one you will marry. Trust in His providence. God's angel is going before you. He will lead you to where you need to be and you will meet the person you need to meet. Don't fret. And no, you don't have to wear a miniskirt for this to happen. Don't fret. God has a plan for you. He knows. He sent already His angel ahead of you. And who is that servant? Who is that servant you think in your own life? Abraham called upon that servant and told him, this is what I want you to do. Who do you think the servant represents? Pardon? Garden angel. The first representation, the first symbolism of, the, of that servant is Jesus Christ, the Lord himself, who has come to serve, not to be served. Abraham represents God the Father sending his own son in the field looking for his for the bride the second meaning of the servant is all those who are doing missionary work all those who are going out proclaiming the good news bringing the good news to others reaching out and obviously you got an angel who goes ahead of you if you were to ask him, your guardian angel will not impose himself on you. He will let you decide. But if you ask him, help me find a job. Help me with this exam. I am anxious. Help me with the anxiety. What should I do? If you were to ask your guardian angel, your guardian angel will gladly oblige and would help you. 
He's like that faithful, faithful servant who knows how to say a prayer and who knows how to read the signs in order to understand what God has in mind, has in plan for you. And so he goes. And he says, grant me good fortune, which is made occur. Lord, grant me good fortune. He is praying that his master's will happens. Here is a servant who is devoted to his master. He works with great devotion. He's taken that specific task and made it his own. And this is how we should work. This is how we should be when we are given a task. Like the servant. And we do it from all our hearts. May may it happen. May it be as you ask for. And so he goes to um, that country... And where, do, where does he stand? At the well. Right? Well, the well is a very important symbolism. He stands at the well and waits. And he's going to ask a woman for a drink. Again, this is an image of what? It's an image of that other encounter that will happen later between Christ and a Samaritan woman at the well. Where Christ asks her for a drink. In both instances, the woman is asked for a drink, and in both instances, a blessing comes upon her. In both cases, the woman is asked for a drink, and in both cases, a blessing comes upon her. What does that suggest? The, one of the foremost quality we must all develop, because what is this woman representing, by the way? On a moral, if I do a moral reading of Scripture right now, meaning the, the reading applies to me, what is this woman representing? Us. What do we mean by us specifically? The soul. Our soul. That's what this woman represents. Our own soul. And Christ is knocking at a door and saying, Give me something to drink. Give me a drink. How do we know he is? Mother Teresa. Her whole ministry is centered on one word of Jesus Christ on the cross. I thirst. But what is Jesus thirsting for when he knocks at the door of your soul and says, give me a drink? What is he thirsting for? Your love. He wants your love. God is knocking at your door. And in return... He adorns you, your soul, with His graces. So the servant, after Rebecca did what she did, adorned her nose and her hands with gold. Symbolizing the nose, in this case, symbolizes the senses. And the hands symbolizes the will, the ability to act. And He puts gold on them, meaning that He purifies them and makes them acceptable before the throne of His Father. And so it is for us. When our soul gets up and then feeds and then gives a drink to the master and to the camels. What do the camels represent in this case? If the servant represents Jesus, what do the camels represent? Not people. Who in particular? What is, what is the specific thing about the camels? 
What is it that they cannot do? In that, in that situation, you have the servant, you have, you have uh, Rebecca at the well, and you have the camels. What is it that Rebecca and the servant can do that the camels cannot do? Draw water from the well. So who do they represent then? The poor, the marginalized, those who cannot draw water from the well, those who do not know how to help themselves. Now, do you have any idea how much a camel can drink? Do you know what she did? She drew water from the well and gave drink to ten camels until they stopped drinking. This is no small feat. This is not Eastern hospitality, by the way. This goes well beyond Eastern hospitality. You're not required to give drinks to the camels all by yourself. You can go call your servants. You can call help. You can call the men who will take care of them. You, as a young girl, are not required to give drinks to ten camels all by yourself. So you see the qualities that he immediately focuses on. He, he doesn't, in his prayer, he's not asking for a pretty girl. Watch the qualities. Here is a girl who is attentive. She is welcoming. She is humble because she's willing to draw water for camels. She's full of energy. She doesn't think of herself. She thinks of others. She's focused on others, in her service to others. When she comes to the well, she is not adorned. She's not wearing bracelets of gold. She's not focused on how pretty she is. But as is the case, God seldom does things you know, halfway through. She is, um, um, she is beautiful and as scripture says, she is a virgin whom a man had not known. The reason why there is this specific whom a man had not known is because the Hebrew word for virgin, Batula, which is the same as in Arabic, does not mean a virgin. It means a young woman of marriageable age. In order for one to specify that she's also a virgin, you have to add that expression, whom a man had not known. So in the conversation between the angel and Our Lady, Mary said to the angel, how could this be since I do not know man? Which is effectively the title that she gave herself, the virgin. The, the, the servant goes and meets her, 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 her folks. Now Laban, her, uh, her brother, isn't really interested in spirituality. Because scripture points out that he received the servant after noticing the ring and the bracelets. Right? Then he is generous. Not so with Rebecca. Rebecca received him before the gold. That's the difference. You have to be perceptive when somebody receives you because the intention may not always be right. 
And after they listened to his story, they agree to the, to the marriage, and then he essentially gives them all these gifts. And by the way, notice, he refuses to eat until he had told them what, he basically completed his mission. He would not eat until it was complete. Right? Not eating, in this case, suggests that we should consider some form of modification for us to be able to complete our work. We shouldn't always pamper our body. Hmm? We live in an age where uh, the body has assumed central importance and the soul is nearly inexistent. Right? We have creams for everything. We have vitamins. Almost every single one of us has become a PhD in vitamins. Um, every day something new pops up. The, 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 it is important to treat our body well, but if we treat it too well, it rebels against us. And how do we see this rebellion in irritability, in anxiety, in vices, vanity, pride, right? avarice, self-love, focus on ourselves and not others. So a little bit of a mortification, whatever the mortification is, is always a good Christian tool to have. And hence, as I said in the beginning, think twice before you throw an outlandish party for your wedding. Especially in difficult times. Especially in difficult times. So, <clears throat> he completes this, but... Laban would like to keep his sister a little longer. He says 10 days. And remember, 10 in Scripture doesn't mean necessarily the number 10. 10 means complete. So it could be 10 days, it could be 2 years. Whatever the period they thought of representing that completeness. right? And you notice it's a similar type of bartering going on here as we saw in the previous chapter when Abraham is trying to buy a cave to bury Sarah. First they tell him, sure, the Lord said it, so just you can take her and go. The following day is, well, <laughs> wait a minute. Now that you gave us all the goodies, let's think about it. But the servant is wise and he knows how to press his case. And then they say, well, let's ask her. Why? Because he said, if she's going to say no, I'm not going to force her. I'll just go back my way. And then I ask her, will you go? And then she says, I'll go. And, and that's what I would like to spend the remain, remainder of, this, uh, of the study on. The ten minutes that is left for us to, to go through. Just to think about that for a second. She said, I will go. Rebecca does not have Skype. She didn't go into her room and checked Isaac's profile on YouTube. Right? There is no internet. There is no phone. There is no camera. There are no pictures. She has never seen him. She has never seen him. In this country, and in most of the Western world, we have fallen under a fallacy. 
And it is a hard, it, it's, a re, it's really hard for the youth today to even hear what I'm saying because um, they've been fed this fallacy ever since they were six, maybe five, depending on when they start watching Walt Disney. And so there is this notion that you must see the other person before you decide whether you want to marry that person or not. Oftentimes, sight is deceiving. What you see is not what you get. Oftentimes, it may, be, it may prove wiser to correspond through letters before you see the other. Because by the time you've corresponded with somebody for six months, and you've learned to know him through or her through the writings, when you see that face... There is a whole context around it. You've learned to know that person. Oftentimes, the visual and the sense obstruct our mind and prevent us from thinking clearly. There are four dimensions to any relationship. Four. The physical. Do I want to be with this person? Do I feel like I can be close to him? Can he touch me? Can I touch him? This one is the easiest to figure out. Therefore, it should be the last. Not the first. Because if it is the first, it tends to fog everything else. The second is the emotional. And it is helpful when you don't see the person and you're receiving letters back and forth to figure out how you feel emotionally about this person. It helps you really restrict this because you really want to know, am I comfortable? Am I being lifted up? Do I have a sense that this is somebody who can help me create a family that I want? Emotionally. If you see the guy and you go to a baseball game and after that you go to a bar and after that you go sit and watch TV and play a game and then you go home and then you go see a movie and you might not realize that the guy can't say two words edgewise until you're married six months later. Hi, honey, how was your day? Fine. What happened? Nothing much. Right? The third is the intellectual. And that takes preparation on both sides. Unfortunately, something that is not as uh, stressed today as it was before. You have to prepare yourself to be able to conduct a conversation intellectually. That means you have to be able to study. And oh, by the way, I'm not talking about politics here. And I'm not talking about the latest fad or latest fashion or what is on TV or the latest baseball game, however important they are. I am talking about the Word of God. I am talking to be able to conduct a religious conversation with somebody. Because religious conversations are like acid. You're going to find out very, very quickly where somebody stands and what are their beliefs and what's important to them. And you'll find out very, very quickly if this is somebody rooted in the faith or not. If talking to a guy and he tells you there are no animals in heaven, which is right a good thing. Well, there may be animals in heaven, but we know animals who live here die, and when they die, they'll go to heaven. They don't have immortal souls. That's good. But if he then adds... The only animals you'll find in heaven are the birds, because the Holy Spirit is a bird. You know, you are, 
you have somebody who might require a little bit more guidance in his faith if he thinks the Holy Spirit is a bird. Right? So that's the third level. And the fourth one is spiritual. Those are the four dimensions of any relationship. Think about how we do it these days. Think about how we progress through it. It's The visual is the first thing. Right? And it tends to mess things up. I, somebody told me that um, his, son, uh, his son was interested in this girl. And the very first thing he did to tell her that he was interested in her, he sent her a rosary. That's smart. That was smart. And here, we see Sarah, we see Rebecca coming, never seen Isaac. She's trusting in God's providence. She's trusting that this is what God has planned for her. Even though she is not of the house of God yet, she has her whole personalities open up to God. And so she goes on this journey, just like Abraham did. She leaves everything behind her, going on the unknown. Going to the unknown to meet this man whom she's never met. And then when she meets him, what was Isaac doing? He went out into the field, which is, again, an an allegory symbolizing the world, because Jesus said there is much work to be done in the field. But like Jesus, he went out to do what? To meditate. He was going out to pray. And she met him when he was praying. Where do usually young men and women meet these days? Yeah, they all go to the bars and then they light up candles and if everybody kneels and they all say the rosary together, right? Look how they met. And then she sees him, and he sees her. Essentially, Scripture is saying, they saw each other right on that moment. And what happened? Love at first sight. God doesn't do things halfway. Notice? God doesn't do things halfway. Love at first sight. But, Rebecca was sitting on the camels, right? Meaning what? Material comfort. She was sitting on... She was materially comfortable having traveled on these camels. When she sees Isaac, what does she do? She alights. She comes down. And she covers herself. She leaves behind the material comfort and she covers herself which is a sign of humility, a sign of obedience. And then he takes her into that tent and he loved her and he was consoled from having lost his mother. Think about that for a second. Usually, when a woman marries a man, there is this kind of struggle with the mother-in-law. Isaac was consoled of the loss of his mother through his wife. Do you know how many couples I know where 
the man is not acting as a man because he is still under the shadow of his mom. It is extremely, extremely dangerous when the man lives under the shadow of his mother. Isaac was consoled because he lost his mother. He was separated from her through his wife. And the two shall become one. What consoled him? Think about it for a second. Was it just the fact that um, Rebecca was pretty? Was that, would that be enough to console him from the loss of someone of the stature of Sarah? Sarah cast a very long shadow. Sarah was a powerful woman. No. That alone would not have consoled him. To console is to take the pain away and replace it with joy. It's a very intellectual process. What consoled him is finding in Rebecca another Sarah. Finding in his wife similar qualities as with his mother. And he was now joined to her. And they became one. How are we acting in our lives? Where do we meet each other even after we're married? If you have been married for some time and you're not dating your wife every week... I mean every week, at least once. I mean you get home, you drop everything, you take your wife, and you go out. I'm not talking about expensive. I'm just talking going out somewhere, sitting down and talking, or listening to her. You don't have to talk, you just have to listen. If you're not doing that for the person that God gave you, the closest person in your life, where is that love? If you haven't been doing it, start tonight. Go on a date. You have to. You have to put your heart in it. Where do you meet? Where do you go? Is God the center of your lives? Is He leading the two of you together? Do you bring religious books to your wife? I'm talking to the men here. As head of the family, it is your duty. If your wife knows more about scripture and about theology, shame on you. Shame on you. You have work to do. You are the one who is supposed to bring the word of God in the family. It is your duty. Your responsibility. You have to do it. Whichever way you do it. You have to do it. Sarah, I mean, Rebecca and, and Isaac are a exhibit A of a relationship that is, in Scripture, has not been superseded throughout the Old Testament until we reach Mary and Joseph. It's one of the most beautiful relationships there is in the whole book of Scripture. There's another beautiful relationship, but it's not about marriage, it's about friendship between David and Jonathan. That's a different one. But as far as marriage is concerned, this is the most beautiful relationship there is in all of Scripture. And they, and, and as um, Kaisers of Arles points out, this is a type that was written for our sanctification. 
It is an example that God gave us telling us, look at them when you think about dating or when you think about looking for a husband or after you've been married, keep, on, keep looking at them. See what they've been doing and act accordingly. The last thing I'll point out to you, oftentimes if God is calling you to move from one place to the other, Usually it is the man who can do that much easier than the woman. To the women I'll say this, do not fight it. If, it's, if the job is secure, if there is a good position, if it's a good community, if you're going to be able to find a way of living there, do not fight it. Just as Rebecca did not fight it. She said, I will go. If God is calling your husband to go somewhere... Don't send the poor guy all by himself. Go with him. You are his wife. There are many, many valuable lessons in this chapter for us. But above all, it is a chapter that shows us how Christ seeks his church. How he went far to seek her. The one church. The one whom he loves with all his heart. He has one bride. He doesn't have two. And just as we. Just as he loved her. If we are to be his imitators. We must love her the same. It is our calling. It is our duty. And it is the one thing that we will rejoice over. When we are in heaven. When we see the splendor of the church. Not the one thing, but many. one of the most important things we will rejoice over when we are in heaven when we see the church triumphant. God bless you. Questions? How did Isaac know that Rebecca is the one? He obviously knew about what his dad told him. And he saw the camels coming back. Right? So he knew that uh, she, was, uh, she was the one. But then there was an additional knowledge that happened when they saw each other. Right. He went from knowing that she was the one because this is what God wanted to knowing that she was the one because this is what he wanted. Right? It's a very good question. Yes. Yes. Very good question. So how could he know uh, that it was uh, her uh, through love at first sight? Where are the four dimensions? How could he, he, he could tell that? Wisdom, uh, prudence actually, prudence, the virtue of prudence is... Um, Effectively, a virtue of um, intuitive knowledge. So somebody who is virtuous in, in, in prudence isn't somebody who is slow. It's actually quite the opposite. It's somebody who has integrated knowledge to such a degree that he can act very quickly. He almost seems as if he's acting impulsively, but it's actually is not. In this specific instance, what they received is wisdom. Right? To be able to know that that's what God wanted for them. And that was yet to be developed. And I'm not recommending that um, we go with love at first sight because oftentimes it isn't love at first sight. It's really folly at first sight because what is lacking is prudence and wisdom. If you take the whole notion of having a princess and a prince fall in love at first sight, imply in a princess and a prince precisely the formation of the virtues. So when somebody's virtuous and he's been training and forming himself for years and has grown in the virtue, then love at first sight could happen. But if there's no training, most of the time, it isn't. Most of the time. Sometimes it still is. God is good.
but I wouldn't count on it. Any other question? All right. God bless you. See you next week. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.